Hello, and welcome to the How Life Works podcast, the podcast that helps introductory biology students better understand some of the toughest topics in the course. These podcasts are written and delivered by the authors of Biology How Life Works and are sponsored by Macmillan Learning. Learn more at macmillanlearning.com. I'm Andrew Barry, one of the authors of How Life Works. I'm an evolutionary biologist, and I want to tell you about what I think is the coolest science being done at the moment. By sequencing DNA from bones that are tens or even hundreds of thousands of years old, we can literally travel into the evolutionary past. This so-called ancient DNA is like a time machine, giving us a direct window into what happened in evolution. And some of the most interesting new things coming out of all of this are about us, about us humans. We are rewriting our understanding of our own history. And that's the history of a species we all care a lot about, Homo sapiens. In Chapter 23 of How Life Works, on human evolution, we look at the out-of-Africa idea of modern human origins. By evolutionary standards, our species is extremely young, having arisen in Africa maybe just a few hundred thousand years ago. The ancestors of everyone who is not an African then departed Africa about, give or take, 60,000 years ago. These intrepid pioneers were heading into truly alien territory. Think about the contrast between the African climates they were accustomed to and the new ones they encountered in Europe and Asia. Think about all the new and nasty diseases they encountered as they traveled north and east, diseases that occur in Europe and Asia, but not in Africa. And what's more, it was territory already inhabited by groups of distant relatives who had themselves left Africa but nearly half a million years earlier. These are the Neanderthals and their Asian relatives, the Denisovans. Non-African Homo sapiens were encountering both challenging environments and groups of relatives, and those relatives kind of had the upper hand. Over the half million years since they had left Africa, they had adapted to European and Asian conditions. What happened when the new arrivals, that's us, met the old-timers, the Neanderthals and Denisovans? With recent technological breakthroughs, we can study the genetic material from people, well, from any organisms, in fact, who are long since dead. Uh, This is so-called ancient DNA. Now we can piece together whole genomes from bones that may be hundreds of thousands of years old. By comparing the genetic material of people alive today with the genetic material of our extinct relatives, we now know that Homo sapiens bred with Neanderthals and Denisovans. That in itself is pretty amazing. But the really cool thing about this is that it allowed members of our species to get their hands on the adaptations that had evolved over millennia in Neanderthals and Denisovans. These populations, after all, had been in Europe and Asia for a long time and had evolved the ability to cope with that harsh climate and with the local disease-causing nasties. So, instead of having to wait around for the right mutations to arise, our non-African ancestors were able to acquire wholesale adaptations to non-African living from our relatives. This is a way of speeding up evolution. 
In Chapter 20, we look at the evolutionary process with a focus on natural selection. This is what drives the adaptation of populations to their environment. As we've seen, the ancestors of non-Africans encountered a whole suite of new environmental conditions when they headed out of Africa. How typically would adaptation to these new conditions work? Let's take a realistic example, skin color. In Africa, dark skin is needed for protection against the DNA-damaging impact of UV, that's ultraviolet, in sunlight. In higher latitudes, in places like northern Europe, however, having dark skin can actually be a problem. The process whereby we produce vitamin D, which is essential for normal growth and development, involves UV penetrating our skin cells. Dark skin cuts out most of the UV, but that's just fine in Africa where there's plenty of UV to go round. In northern Europe, though, there's much less sunlight, and dark-skinned people can become deficient in vitamin D, simply because their skin pigments are too effective in cutting down the amount of UV entering their cells. In children, vitamin D deficiency can result in rickets, a painful and debilitating condition. The solution? Unpigmented skin. That's skin that does not cut down access of skin cells to that feeble northern European sunlight. Okay, so that's the evolutionary pressure at work in these ancestral populations, but let's look in detail at how natural selection actually works. There is genetic variation for skin colour, with individuals with lighter skin in those ancient populations being less prone to rickets than individuals with dark skin. This wouldn't have been a huge advantage, probably, but on average, lighter-skinned individuals would have had more surviving children than darker-skinned ones. Over time, as the generations rolled by, the alleles underlying lighter skin would therefore become more and more common in the population. It would take time, and what a slow, clumsy process. Assuming typical selection pressures, it generally takes generations and generations and generations for a favoured allele to go to 100% in a population. It's a long wait. And that's just for one allele. Now imagine there's another allele that makes the light skin somewhat lighter. Now the whole slow process repeats itself. It's this slowness and inefficiency that makes this new idea of acquiring adaptations from other populations so exciting. Instead of having to wait generations and generations as various beneficial mutations arise and increase in frequency in a population, a population can simply acquire an adaptation, maybe a whole suite of many mutations from a resident population that has already undergone all that natural selection in order to adapt to the conditions. Ancestral non-Africans were not well adapted to their new environment, but their new neighbours were. That's the Neanderthals and Denisovans. Natural selection had done its work over the ages in Neanderthals and Denisovans. And then along comes Homo sapiens. And next, ho, oh, sex. And suddenly the ancestors of non-Africans have taken a major shortcut to being adapted to their new environment by acquiring a whole cassette of genetic adaptations from Neanderthals and Denisovans. Here's an amazing example of this process in action. 
We know that Tibetans are physiologically different from most of us. They carry genetic changes that allow them to live comfortably at super high altitudes where oxygen is gaspingly thin. If you've ever been at altitude, uh, like on a visit to the mountains of Colorado, you'll know how tough it is to hike or even... <sighs> walk up a flight of stairs in the thin air of high altitude. We can all acclimate to these conditions to some extent if we spend enough time there. For example, we produce more red blood cells to facilitate the capture of oxygen molecules and to distribute them more efficiently around the body. Tibetans, in contrast, are born with inbuilt advantages in oxygen handling. They don't need to acclimate. They're born acclimated. Scientists have been interested for some time in what it is that makes the Tibetans special in this way. They've accordingly done genetic mapping studies similar to the ones described in Chapter 16 of How Life Works. These studies suggested that one particular gene played a prominent role in Tibetan altitude adaptation. The gene is called EPAS1. Now, don't worry about the name or the specifics of what it does. What matters is that it is the critical gene in the Tibetans' ability to cope with a lack of oxygen. The curious thing about EPAS1 in Tibetans is that it differs by a large number of mutations from all other versions of the gene in human populations. It seems there's a quantum genetic leap between the regular human version and the Tibetan one. And, as I've said, it's clearly the Tibetan one that is key to Tibetan high-altitude adaptation. How could this have arisen? This is the cool bit. Remarkably, it turns out that the Tibetan sequence is virtually identical to the Denisovan sequence. The implication is both clear and stunning that the ancestors of Tibetans acquired, through ancient interbreeding, the Denisovan EPAS1 allele. And that allele had evolved under the influence of natural selection over the ages in Denisovans to permit them, the Denisovans, to live comfortably at high altitude. Cool. But there was still a puzzling aspect to all this. As discussed in Chapter 23 of How Life Works, we know virtually nothing about the Denisovans. All we know about them is based on DNA. And that, believe it or not, all comes from a single pinky bone and a tooth found in a single cave in Siberia. And this is the puzzling thing. That cave is not at high altitude. Why then did the Denisovans evolve adaptations for life at high altitude if they didn't live at high altitude? Earlier this year, the problem was solved. A second set of Denisovan remains was discovered in a cave at 11,000 feet above sea level. And yes, you guessed it, that cave is in Tibet. Denisovans lived in Tibet and presumably evolved over the ages to cope with the challenges of low oxygen levels. The ancestors of modern Tibetans acquired the Denisovan adaptation via interbreeding. There's a technical term used to describe this process, adaptive introgression. But I prefer to think of this as genetic borrowing. One population acquiring the adaptations of another through interbreeding. 
EPAS1 interbetans is just one example. Genetic borrowing from our relatives has been, it seems, critical to the successful spread of our species across the face of the planet. So, where does this leave us? It makes us rethink aspects of the evolutionary process. And surely, perhaps this is the important thing, it should make us more appreciative of our long-dead relatives. Thank you, Neanderthals. Thank you, Dennis Ovens. Thank you for listening to the How Life Works podcast. I hope this talk helped better your understanding of the material you're covering in the course. Good luck, and don't ever stop being curious about how life works.